Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. I am learning what sleep deprivation truly means at this stage of life. But in and amongst learning how to live with that sleep deprivation, I've been learning how to stay focused. Because when you get very little sleep, even the most minute tasks become that much more difficult, like making coffee and not putting the coffee pot back underneath so that it pulls the coffee where it needs to, not all over the counter, or you know, making sure that you turn off the, the tap for the kitchen sink so that you don't flood your kitchen. They become big deals. Staying focused is a really difficult thing. And while having children is certainly a familiar way many of us experience change and difficulties in our life, uh, we all experience change. We all experience struggle. We all experience what it means to stay focused. In fact, if you've ever met anyone who welcomes change in their life, have you ever met anyone who said, I love when change occurs in my life? Anyone met that person? Any hands? This is good. If you ever meet that person, walk very quickly in the opposite direction. That is not a person to be trusted. It's like the person who prays for patience. You just know that God is about to do something in their life. But change, change is inevitable. It's inevitable in our lives, in our faith, and we can often struggle with change. The question for each of us as believers becomes, how do we keep focused on what God would have for us. How do we know what we're pursuing is what God would have for us. For those of us who have faith in Christ, we know that God is always faithful because of who God is and what God has done for us. However, our lives bring conflict. Our lives bring suffering. And we can easily begin to doubt and we can easily begin to lose focus. We might feel that God has forgotten us for a time as we lament and pray that God brings about more change, except this time the change that we want, the change in the direction we want to go. That provides us with choices, and we all appreciate having choices, especially when there's one that looks appealing to us or it's something that we desire. Like the Israelites, we can become discontent and elect our own king, choose to ignore what God wants for us and make our own choices. Or we can do the Israelite thing and choose to trust God to do a new thing in our lives. Our lives are full of change, they're full of choice, and focus becomes a big part of that. Something to consider for each one of us this morning as you're sitting here, are your best days in the past? Like the Israelites probably felt while they were in Babylon, we may wonder if God has mainly blessed us sometime in the past. We may wonder if he has anything new planned for us. I believe that he does, and to encourage us in this, I thought Paul's letter to the Philippians would speak to us. In Philippians, we read about several things. We read about joy, and we are to rejoice that we are in Christ. We are to rejoice that Christ is proclaimed. We're to rejoice with others who minister and rejoice in good times and in suffering. We also read about contentment, that we ought to be content with whatever we have. 
we need to learn to live with little and with much. And in all things, give thanks to God for everything that we have. We also read about not giving up. We should not give up serving God and trusting him to continue what he has started. And to do this, we need to focus on the goal. We need to leave the past in the past. And we need to press on to what lies ahead of us. And that's where Paul brings us to Philippians. So we're going to read Philippians chapter 3. It's going to be on the screen in front of you or you can read it on your phone or whatever Bible you have brought with you. It says this, Paul writing to the church in Philippi, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Missed a slide there. Beautiful thing about technology is I can just look it up. I have more reason, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, these things I have counted as loss because of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ as my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them mere rubbish, so I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection." The fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if somehow I may attain to the res resurrection from the dead. Not that I already grasped it all or have already become perfect, but I press on if I may also take hold of that for which I was even taken hold of by Christ Jesus." Brothers and sisters, I do not regard myself as having taken hold of it yet, but one thing I do forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, all who are mature, let's have this attitude. And if, and if in anything you have a different attitude, God reveal that to you as well. However, let's keep living by that same standard to which we have attained Brothers and sisters, join in the following of my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I often told you, and now tell you even as I weep, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who have their minds on earthly things." For our citizenship is in heaven, 
from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our lowly condition into conformity with his glorious body by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Before we focus on chapter 3, there's a lot there. I want to provide a little bit of context for Philippians because we're just going to focus on chapter 3 this morning and the challenges that Paul shares. Philippians is a rather short letter comprising only four chapters. It's one of Paul's shortest writings, and it's very different on a number of counts. One, Paul was writing while he was in prison. Paul was writing to the saints at the church in Philippi, who were majority of Gentiles around AD 60 to 61 during his first Roman imprisonment. Because Paul loved to get imprisoned often, this is his first one. But it's a deeply personal letter where he expresses his love, gratitude, and care towards the church in Philippi and those that he's personally worked with. The tone of the letter contrasts some of Paul's other letters, as this one is gentle and warm. It feels a lot like a thank you letter. Knowing the context of each book we study in Scripture is so important because knowing the who, the what, where, why, it gives us a deeper perspective and a more accurate interpretation as we read it. If imprisoned, would your top priority be to show joy and preach on humility, unity, and contentment? I don't think it would be mine. And it's incredible to me that while Paul had every earthly reason to pout, be angry, or question God's plan, he chooses instead to rejoice. Instead of being filled with anxiety and fear, he chose ultimate contentment and prayer. That kind of trust and confidence in the Lord is difficult to find in our world today, where it is painfully easy to find things and people who love to complain or things to complain about. Second thing is there's two major themes that we find in this chapter. The first, or sorry, in, in Philippians itself. The first major theme is the gospel. Paul is reiterating the gospel to the church at Philippi. And he mentions the gospel nine times. He speaks of the fellowship of the gospel, the confirmation of the gospel, the progress, defense, striving for the faith of, service in, labor in, and beginning of the gospel. And while it doesn't appear in chapter 3, his letter to the Philippians is immersed with the language of an active, living, breathing gospel. The second major theme is joy. Philippians is known as the book of joy. And the outlook for him in Rome certainly was unpleasant. Make no mistake about it. Roman prisons were nothing to write home about. And we remember that he was one quick trial or a sudden execution away from death. Same was spending years upon years in prison with no trial. Yet Philippians is anything but pessimistic. Instead, Paul rejoices in every remembrance of the Philippians and because Christ was preached. Although the epistle, or all throughout the epistle, there's this brilliant joy of faith contrasted with the somber background of difficult circumstances and impending disaster. Philippians is essentially a note of thanks for favors received and an expression of the personal Christian life of Paul. And within chapter 3, we have an outstanding passage that provides an insight into the driving motive of Paul. 
His amazing devotion and unwavering zeal place him among the great leaders of history who have devoted their entire lives to a cause in which they utterly believed. To Paul, to gain Christ, to know Christ, and to be found in Christ, and to attain the goal set in Christ, engaged all of Paul's attention. For him, it was Christ and nothing else. And I love Jay's prayer earlier. The world that we see around us needs the love of Christ. And if we were to dedicate ourselves, much like Paul did, to focusing on Christ and nothing else, I have much more confidence that the world would know that love. So today, what I want us to do is to focus on the goal. I want us to focus on the goal that Paul had and the goal that we should have. Right? One thing that is necessary in life is goals. We can't escape them. We need goals. For without them, we're hardly motivated to achieve whatever it is we need to do. Imagine someone in your life that has no goals. There's probably one person, someone who lacks motivation or drive to get something done. Getting them to do anything is like pulling teeth. It's painful. We need goals. We need motivation. This time of year, we're always reminded of New Year's resolutions. And New Year's resolutions are good, but we don't need to wait until January to to put a new goal up in our life to pursue something different or find more motivation. One of the most remarkable books that I've read this past year is is it's called What's Best Next? And it's from an author called Matt Perman. Uh, If you struggle with goal setting, it's a wonderful book from a Christian worldview that takes the the light of the gospel, the message of the gospel, and then translates it into helping you find purpose and mission and goal setting. It's a remarkable book that I've really taken a lot out of. And we can and should resolve to do new things whenever change is needed. Most of us are really good at identifying what we need to do or where we need to go. We're not always good at getting there. But most of us, If you're traveling down a road and notice that you're going the wrong way, or if you notice that there's a better way, you don't often just continue the way you're going. You will often make a change. You do the prudent thing and make the smart choice. However, we have to know what the goal is that we have in mind if we're going to make changes. If we don't know what the goal is, we are just aimlessly wandering. And something the Apostle Paul did was never aimlessly wander. The Apostle Paul expressed his desire to achieve a certain goal, and this specific goal in mind, he sought to reach it. He says it in verses 12 through 16. I'm going to read them again. It says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained." Now, some people, including myself in the past, think that they may have already arrived, that they are a super-Christian or a special child of God who need no improvement. 
They confused the moment they were saved with the process of the Holy Spirit, molding them into the image of Christ. Then there's people that focus on the wrong things. They have the wrong goal. Their goal is not the same that God would have for us. Their goal is on temporary, earthly things, earthly pleasures. These things don't matter in the grand scheme of eternity. Did you catch what Paul called these people in Philippians? He calls these people enemies of the cross of Christ. But that is not so for the true church of God. The true church, Christ's church, knows what the goal is and focuses on that. They focus on becoming like Christ. So let me ask you this morning, what is your goal in life? Why are you here today? What is the goal of the church, the global church? Why are we here on a Sunday morning when we easily could have convinced ourselves that the roads outside were just too bad and we could curl up with a nice book or watch a good show and just excuse ourselves for a Sunday? It's because we know the goal. How many of you are married here? Hands up if you're married. How many are in a relationship? Hands up if you're in a relationship. Have you ever witnessed selective attention or selective hearing? Anyone ever noticed that? Husbands are really good at it. There's something called selective attention in our lives. Christopher Chabri and Daniel Simons actually conducted an experiment at Harvard University in the late 90s called the Invisible Gorilla. Not sure if you've ever heard of this. If you have, wonderful. If you haven't, I'm going to spoil it for you, but you can go home, search it up on YouTube, and you have the best five minutes of entertainment you're going to get today. All right? But he, they, they created something called the Invisible Gorilla, and it's a selective attention test. Two researchers, these two researchers, film students passing basketballs while moving in a circular fashion while wearing white T-shirts. And they told the individuals that they were supposed to count how many times they passed the basketball only to people in white t-shirts. And in the middle of this short film, a woman dressed in a gorilla suit walks into the frame of the camera, stares at it, beats her chest, and then walks out of frame. All while a bunch of students are passing basketballs around. The sequence takes nine seconds with the gorilla. Viewers are given specific instructions. Count the number of passes by players wearing white shirts. So these two uh, um, university professors showed a class, uh, uh, they showed a group of students this video, and they said, count how many times the ball gets passed. Of course, the researchers were not interested in how many times the basketball was passed between the group. They wanted to see if the viewers would notice something as obvious as a gorilla. Amazingly, only half the participants noticed the gorilla. Now, you're going to ask, how is that even possible? Surely, if a gorilla walked into a camera frame, I would notice it. Well, the answer is intentional blindness. It's selective attention. Intentional blindness is the failure to notice something in your field of vision because you are focused on something else. In this case, people in white shirts passing basketballs. For me, it's my wallet or keys when I'm at home. I can never find them. And then my wife walks up and it's right in front of me. It's intentional blindness. 
I'm focused on something else. So even though it's right in front of me, I can't seem to focus enough to have my brain recognize that it's there. Sounds a whole lot like the first century Pharisees. They couldn't see the miracles happening right in front of them. Jesus healed an invalid who, had wa- who hadn't walked in 38 years. He gave sight to a man born blind. He restored a man's withered arm. But the Pharisees, they missed it all. They were so caught up in their legalistic approach to faith that even though the Savior was staring them in the face and doing miracles in God's name, they couldn't recognize it. They couldn't see past their religious assumptions because their goal was not God's goal. If we want to pursue the goal that Christ has for us, How do we get there? How do we prevent selective attention from ruining our spiritual journey? Well, one of the instructions that Paul gives us is to leave the past in the past. To have a goal means to move forward. To go forward also means to move away from something else. You cannot move towards something and and towards something else at the same time. You have to leave something behind. For instance, if you make a resolution to do something, but you never change, we stay right where we are. We won't reach that goal. If you resolve to lose weight or be healthier, but you don't change anything that you're doing and expect results, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Similarly, if we stay in the past, we get stuck. We keep doing the same things that we're doing. We keep doing the same things over and over and over again, but expecting a different result. Do you know what the definition of that is? Insanity. If we get stuck on the day that we accepted Christ, or the day we were baptized, or the day we joined a church, or a monumental day in our spiritual faith, if we stay that same believer we were that day, and we never move forward, if we never become more like Christ we are not moving towards the goal that Christ has set for us. We will not experience the new things that God has planned for us. We cannot move forward if we stay parked in the past. And Paul realized this about his relationship with God. And this is what he's pointing at in verses 12 to 13. Right? Again, not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul got it. Paul considered his past was not worth comparing to his present relationship with Christ or his glorious future with God. And you might say that once Paul accepted Christ, he didn't dwell in the past. He kept an eye on what was ahead of him, on the goal that God had created for him, and not what was behind him. Paul had to keep moving, and he moved a lot, right? We know him as one of the big missionaries of the first century church. All of Paul's missionary journeys, he moved around a lot. Why? Why so many? He could have easily gone to one church, made it a really big church, and just proclaimed the message and sent people out. But he knew his goal, what God wanted for him to continue growing in his faith, he had to keep moving, he had to keep going, and he had to keep growing. Ever stop and think about Paul's amazing change 
or what it would have been like for him as a Pharisee convert to interact with those whom he antagonized or challenged in his previous life. Paul undoubtedly faced many Jews and many Christian converts that he interacted with during his time as a Pharisee. They would have seen his change. They would have seen it. Would they have believed it? Not once do we see Paul concerning himself with what other people thought. No, he was focused on leaving his old life behind and pressing on to what Christ had called him to be. Many Jewish Christians had a hard time letting go of their past and pursuing their future in Christ. When Christ came and offered salvation by grace, many of them were still trying to incorporate the legal demands of the law with the freedom they received in Christ. Thus, Paul had to remind them again and again and again to stop living in the past and embrace the grace and freedom of Christ. Are you still trying to earn your salvation? Are you still holding other accountables for their past, for their sin? Have you allowed Christ to forgive you and others in your life? Are you stuck somewhere and God wants you to move forward? See, forgetting what lies behind should include both our shortcomings and our successes. A way to forget the past is to not dwell on what's happened. Now that's easier said than done, but it doesn't matter whether it's good or bad. And this is where a lot of Christians and the church has gotten stuck in the past. See, if God forgives you, you're forgiven. I I don't need to beat myself up about my past failures. I need to learn from them and use those lessons to improve myself now and in the future. But this isn't done for my benefit, but it's done for God's glory. Likewise, we must not live in the good old days. When great things had happened, we cannot let what was dictate what is or what will be. That's why I asked you right at the outset, do you believe that God has something incredible for you? Does God have a plan for you? If you do, then there's something better waiting for you than anything you've experienced. We should not allow ourselves to become paralyzed in the past or become complacent with the present. Maybe things are different now. What done was, what's done was done, but some churches have a hard time forgetting what lies ahead. For many believers, the past becomes a hero to them, something to worship. Many of them think the way things were done was the best way. The past contained the good old days, the glory days, when things were the way they should be. And it's good to remember the good times. It's wonderful to celebrate what God has done. But we cannot live in the past if we want to reach our goal. We must forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. What lies ahead should be that which God desires for each and every single one of us. That leads us to our next point. Don't ignore what's broken. If you are pursuing change, but change is not coming, wrestle with it. Dedicate yourself to figuring out the problem before it ruins your life. When I was 19 years old, my friends and I had a brilliant idea to drive down to Seattle and watch a ball game because I'm a big baseball fan and I've been cheering for the Mariners since I was eight years old and I went to a Calgary Cannons game and I got to meet Alex Rodriguez. Love baseball. And so I'm 19 years old, and we thought, let's drive down to Seattle. It was a great idea, except my two friends didn't have their driver's license. So I drove the whole way from Calgary to Seattle. That was mistake number one. 
as we're driving down, we cross the border, we get across the border, border guards didn't think we were a security risk, so we're driving through the states, and as we're, we're crossing between Idaho and Washington, all of a sudden, my car started shaking a little bit. Now, mind you, I was going 135 because I was 19 and I drove really stupidly, but my car started shaking a little bit. So I did the prudent thing and I changed course and I went down to 130, a nice safe speed. Except a few minutes later, it started shaking a little bit. So I dropped it down to 120 for a few minutes until it started shaking a little bit. Then it was 110 and then it was 100. And when it was 100, I went over and I looked at my buddy Chris and I said, think something's wrong. And he went, oh, what's wrong? And I said, well, the steering wheel is shaking. Is that normal? He went through high school, did trades. He was a mechanic in the Navy. I thought this guy would know what the problem is. That's fine. Don't worry about it. Keep driving. So we kept driving. And now we were starting to enter into Washington, and the road started to become really windy as we started climbing through the mountains. And I went from 100 to 90 to 80 to 70, and any of you that have any mechanical intuition know exactly where this is going. But all of a sudden, I'm at 70, and I'm dropping down, and I thought to myself, I should probably figure out what's wrong. Something seems dangerous here. This isn't right. So I found the next place I could, I pulled to the side of the road, and I got out of the car to look at the engine, because surely it was the engine. That was the only thing I could think of. So I open the hood, I'm looking in, I'm running the engine, can't hear anything, nothing's knocking or clicking or making funny sounds. So me and my buddy Chris and, and my buddy Mike, we got out of the vehicle and we just start walking around, thinking that maybe like the walls of Jericho, if we just walk around enough, the problem will solve itself. And we're walking around and my buddy Chris gets under the hood of the car. He's like, oh, maybe the problem's underneath. I'll take a look underneath. And I go, sure, yeah, you do that. And I'm walking around the car and then I come up to my driver's side tire and it looks off. Just looks funny. So I give it a kick. Good, good boot to the tire. And the tire almost fell off my car. Because in the process of driving an hour, as my steering column is shaking, all but one lug nut had fallen off, and one lug nut was holding on by a thread. I'm not joking, a thread. I bent down and I pulled it off. I'm fairly confident that the Lord intervened in my life in that moment, because had I gone around the next corner, I'm fairly certain tire would have come off and I would have gone down a mountain. You gotta fix what's broken. You have to identify what's broken. You have to do something about it. You can't continue driving and just staying the course when you know something is wrong. And that's what sin does in our lives. We can use our selective blindness with sin to simply ignore it for so long that it becomes such an issue that it ruins everything. And this is what Paul references Paul remains focused in the short letter to the Philippians, but if you take one look outside to any of his other letters that he writes, we can see that Paul was focused with other churches on taking sin seriously. We would do well while maintaining our focus on the goal to not simply ignore those things that we struggle with. We all struggle. 
Sometimes we see the things in front of us and other times we don't. And this is why Paul was so insistent on dedicating ourselves to Christ because Paul, I think he understood it. I don't for a second think any of the apostles were saints and didn't sin. They all had their own struggles. Christ knew that. The apostles knew that. The early church knew that. But they dedicated themselves And we can become rather apathetic in our mission and begin to uh, ignore many of the warning signs that life presents us that something isn't quite right. We can go a long ways ignoring sin. We have an overwhelming ability as humans to argue with ourselves, don't we? To convince ourselves of our own reality, that whatever is happening right in front of us is maybe normal. Maybe it's normal that the steering column just shakes for an hour really driving on a highway. That's normal. We have an overwhelming ability to accept sin in our lives, giving ourselves forgiveness because we're broken people, and just allow ourselves to sin one more day, one more week. I'll stop sinning at 2025. I'll, I'll get my life together then. I'll grant myself a year of indulgences because I'm a broken person and I know Christ wants better for me, but I just can't get there today. So next year, I'll get, I'll get there next year. Paul doesn't give us that option. What does he tell us? What is his direction? He says, press on to what lies ahead. Wheel falls off my car as soon as I take the lug nut off. Then we'd have to jack it up. Took one lug nut off of every other tire, put it on the tire that fell off, tightened it extra tight, extra tight, and drove to Seattle so I could take it to a mechanic and just make sure that I could make it home safely. But we have to press on to the goal. We don't get a choice as believers in Christ. If you have a personal salvation with Jesus, you don't have an option to not pursue the goal. That is our mission. That is our purpose. You cannot believe the gospel. You cannot believe what Christ says and what the apostles shared and taught and not understand that you don't have a choice to press on to what lies ahead. We must focus on the goal. We have to leave the past in the past, but we have to press on to what lies ahead. If you take a trip, you don't stop halfway along the way. If you're out driving and a blizzard hits and you pull off to a small town in the middle of nowhere, Saskatchewan, when the blizzard clears, you don't buy a house and set up shop and go, well, this is my life now. I drove here. I guess it's a nice spot. There's a lake nearby. I'll make, I'll make do. No, we continue on. Life will hit us with storms. We will all struggle. We will all get scared, but we all keep going. <laughs> We have to live in the here and now. And some believe in taking it one day at a time, and I think that's true. In terms of time, we all have to work with the present. That's all we have, and we have to use it well. When the present is gone, when that time has been spent, it cannot be reclaimed. It is gone forever. Therefore, we must make the most of what God has given us. Paul challenged us to press on and work hard for the goal that God has set before us. Look look at Philippians 12 again. Not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own. He was continually focused on making his life with Christ his own, not because of what Christ did in his life, but because of what he was doing. He knew that he had to make his faith his own. He had to make those choices himself to press on, to pursue that goal with which Christ had challenged him. Now, is Christ a part of that process? Absolutely. We can't do it apart from Christ, but Christ can't be the only reason. We have to motivate ourselves to pursue it. Christ isn't going to drag us there. Paul mentioned that he was pursuing something. He was pressing on towards a goal. Right? The goal of completing his salvation was like a finish line in a race. The word for press on is an athletic metaphor that brings to mind straining muscles, clear focus, and complete dedication of the runner in his race to a prize. Paul was describing the process of exerting oneself to the utmost, like stretching out to reach something. It is like a runner straining his muscles and having complete dedication in order to finish the race and to win the prize. To do this, we have to leave the past in the past and move forward to what God has planned for us in the future. Paul constantly aimed toward a heavenly goal, not a personal goal. Here, Paul mentioned that he was pursuing the call of God in Christ Jesus. The call is probably associated with the final resurrection for Paul. He's thinking where on one day, we all go to heaven. And like a victory in a race, Paul lived for the day when he would hear God's announcement that he had indeed finished the race and that he had ran it well. And this motivated Paul to work harder for Christ, for God's glory, Rather than slack off, as some of us are prone to do from time to time, Paul's anticipation of that victory in Christ motivated him to keep working even from a prison cell. To pursue something stresses an active commitment to Jesus. Becoming like Jesus is the goal, but notice the reason why Paul pressed on for that goal. It's because Jesus had made Paul his own. Paul understood that Christ had made him his brother, his child. Christ was Paul's Lord through and through, full stop. We press on, we work hard, because we belong to Jesus as well. We press on to know Christ better, to have a perfect fellowship with him, because he knows us. We press on to know Christ better because our citizenship is now in heaven, not anywhere else just in heaven. Our pressing on to know Christ better, however, involves the whole church. This is a communal process. Pressing on to the call of God involves the whole church working together side by side. God involves the whole church working together side by side because we need each other. Because it's hard. Because we sometimes need encouragement. Because we sometimes need someone to help pick us up or point out something right in front of us that we can't see. To reach our goal often means to, to make changes. And that's not always easy. Change is good, but only when it's what we want it to be. Are we willing to press on to the upward call of Christ, even if it means making changes that we don't like? Are we willing to press on 
Are we willing to do whatever it takes to be faithful to God and reach others for him? Verse 16 says, only let us hold true to that which we've already attained. Paul was focused on the goal of his calling to Christ. He looked forward to that day when the race would be over and God would call his name as victor. He didn't allow his past circumstances, good or bad, to derail his journey. But rather, he pressed on to what God was preparing for him each stop along his journey. Are we willing to do the same thing? Are you willing to recognize the call and to press on? Now, in closing, maybe the resolution we should make for this new year is to press on towards that same goal that Paul did. The goal of every Christian ought to be to finish the race well, to become like Jesus Christ. Christians who want to finish the race well will do these four things, I am convinced. They will focus on the goal of being more like Jesus. They will refuse to be paralyzed or complacent by their past. They will work to deal with sin in their lives, and they will also intensely pursue the calling of the Christian life until God calls them home. This is not an individual calling, but like I said, one that it encapsulates the entire church. We have to work together and help each other to become more like Christ. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.